You're listening to the audio-only version of the Moe Gamer podcast. Don't forget you can watch a video version of this episode over on YouTube. Check moegamer.net for a link to the channel. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to the Moe Gamer podcast. I'm Pete Davison of moegamer.net and I am ill, which is nice. Um, but it does afford me the opportunity to make my voice drop about two octaves and do a very good vampire impression. What is a man? A miserable little pile of secrets. It was not by my hand that I am once again given flesh. Or something like that. Anyway, um, yes, you can... Uh, <laughs> we should do the whole thing. <laughs> You want me to do the whole podcast like this? It's probably actually easier on my voice, actually, if I do that. But I'm not going to do that. Anyway, um, you can hear my good friend Chris Kasky here joining me once again for some discussion of games. Our main topic for the third segment today is going to be horror in various descriptions. And uh, we've got a lot to say about that. There's also a fair amount of interesting news to talk about at the moment as well. So... I'm going to jump right in with a couple of things I just want to cover quickly because there's not a huge amount to talk about with them, but uh, I do want to acknowledge them. Um, the first one is the unfortunate news that um, a visual novel developer in Japan uh, appears to have been affected by Sony's apparent new policies over vaguely adult content. Um, now, I don't want to say too much about this because, uh, to be honest, a lot of the evidence I've seen for this has been fairly anecdotal and I've not really seen anyone actually digging into it very deeply. But um, the gist of the story is that there's a visual novel called uh, Noroto Ojo to Noraneko, also known as Noratoto, by a developer called Harukaze. It came out on PC in 2016 as an 18 plus adults only title. Got released on Vita as an all ages title with titties in 2017. Uh, and it had an HD release recently for PS4 and Switch. Um, and some people have been reporting that the Switch version has the same artwork as the Vita version. Um, so, sort of, no nips and vag and sex or anything like that, but sort of etchy content. Um, but the PS4 version, um, supposedly, has these massive big beams of light covering over anything good. Which um, is very strange, because... It, it, it seems odd that um, even if Sony does have this new policy that's affected Senran Kagura recently, why would it be affecting Japanese developers? And like I say, it's, it's difficult to determine how genuine this is or if it's a problem, but a couple of people I've spoken to on Twitter say that they watch some streams uh, and that those light beams do appear to be in place in the PS4 version. But one thing I haven't seen anyone actually investigate is... Um, whether they are actually there while you're playing or if they're added by the share function because one of the things the share function on PS4 can do is actually overlay stuff on top of the artwork hmm. and all I've, all I've seen so far is screenshots shared from someone's PS4 um, there's also the possibility that somewhere in the options menu there could be the option to turn on and off these things or something like that but like I say I can't say specifics one way or the other at the moment because one I haven't played the game Two, I don't have the disposable income to drop 6,000 yen on a game I can't understand just to see if there's tits in it. Um, and three, no one else appears to put in, uh, be willing to put in that legwork either. But that's um, that's been uh, an interesting story to see develop anyway. Like I say, not much else to say about that, but uh, I did want to acknowledge it because it came up this week. We should definitely be angry on the internet about it, even though we haven't investigated it conclusively. Definitely. Absolutely, definitely. Let's get really furious about it. 
Anyway, uh, leaving that aside, uh, the other quick thing I just wanted to acknowledge is just a little bit of industry drama. Um, yesterday, it was announced that both uh, Tom Lipschultz and Brittany Avery have both left Exceed Games, which is uh, a massive bummer, to be honest, because they were both... Uh, That's sort a of shocker. Very, yeah. Uh, Tom's apparently been planning to leave for a while. Brittany sounded like it was um, a bit more of a sudden decision. Uh, obviously, as you might expect, she's not going into any detail as to the circumstances of it, whether she was let go or if she decided to just walk out herself. But, um, yeah, fact is, both of those guys were very influential figures at the company. Tom was very well known for his stance on um, sort of uh, being anti-cuts to content when it brought uh, when it came west. So he, he always very much stood up for um, bringing uncut experiences west even if he didn't particularly agree with the content like for example the recent senran kaga example he pointed out that he wasn't a particularly big fan of what the intimacy mode offers but he he would still fight for its inclusion because it was part of the original game and then uh britney on the other hand she is very well known as a localization producer and editor she's probably best uh, best known for her work on the falcom games that exceed have brought west so she worked on a number of the Ease games, and she's probably best known for her work on the Trails series, particularly Trails of Cold Steel. That's been sort of her baby for most of its installments. So, um, yeah, for both of them to be out the door on the same day is unfortunate and a little bit worrying for Exe, but they, they seem to be getting on with things. But um, it'll be interesting to see how they continue from there. It was just a bit sad to see them leave. I used to be like a gung-ho Exceed fan, but like over the years, they just started stopped releasing as many games of interest to me. Mm. Like there was a time where like 25% of the games I was buying were Exceed games. Yeah. And now it's like Exceed is announcing four more games and then like I want none of them. So yeah. like they're not, I mean, probably not the same for you, obviously, because of their involvement with Senran Kagura and progressively like the visual novels and stuff. But like... Mm -hmm. Yeah. They've kind of dropped off my radar in terms of significance. They've the been trying to broaden their remit a bit, I think. Uh, one of the things they've been trying to do, like the, the last thing that Brittany was working on before she left was this um, London Detective Mysteria uh, visual novel, yeah. which is uh, an Otomi game, which I know a lot of people are very interested in seeing more of in the West. And so just a, f a few localizers and publishers are really starting to cotton on to the fact that there's a market for those now. But um, yeah... I can say again, um, not a lot more to say on that because we don't know the circumstances on it and it's not really appropriate to go poking at the, the pair of them when they've obviously got their own stuff to deal with. But again, sure. just something I wanted to acknowledge. Yeah, well, best wishes to them in whatever new horizons yes, they, indeed. they pursue. Yeah. They're both good people. Yeah, exactly. I've had nothing but positive interactions with both of them. Brittany was a huge help when I was on US Gamer and I did that lengthy article on... Um, uh, otaku games she provided plenty of comment on things like senra and kagura and that kind of thing there so yeah i will forever be grateful to her for her contributions to the industry and that sort of thing and 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 tom as well he's had a great uh, influence on a lot of games that i've enjoyed over the years so good luck to them i say all right uh right what actual stories have we got we want to talk about do you want to kick off with one yeah um We've had several discussions over the course of this podcast about my love of Sega, mm -hmm. um, and I am delighted to share the news that 
apparently the PS4 is getting ports of the first three Virtual On games. Right. Um, as both a tremendous old-school Sega fan and a giant robot aficionado, I am very, very fond of the Virtual On series, <laughs> uh, which is, if nobody out there's played it, and I know a lot of people actually haven't played Virtual On. No, I've never a, touched it. It's a series of versus 3D action games that uh, function off a twin stick. So they, mm-hmm. they have a, a arcade, or heavy arcade origins. Um, and you play as giant robots dueling um, with a unique twin stick setup where um, basically each stick is kind of correspondent to the legs of your robot. Okay. So, so if you push one forward and pull one back... That kind of means I'm stepping that foot forward and that foot back, and then you'll rotate in that direction. Okay. Both sticks forward is walk forward. Both sticks back is walk backward. Pull sticks apart is to jump. Um, so it's it's really fun to, to kind of try to get in the head of your robot and kind of deal with like understanding the directional movement in terms of basically your legs. Yeah. Um, they're great. And the first three of them are coming out onto the PlayStation Network. Um, okay. I don't know anything about whether or not there's going to be a Western release for this yet, but you can always make a Japanese PSN account. Um, yeah. You know, you don't you don't have to know English. They're arcade games. Exactly. Like it doesn't doesn't. You so, do have to know English if you're English, but you don't have to know Japanese. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so 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 what is the actual game? So you, you you pilot a giant robot, and is it is it like a fighting game or is it like arena combat or how, how does yeah. it work? Yeah. Uh, well, it's... You ever play Cyber Sled back on the PS1? No. No? Okay. So, it's, it's just a... It's basically a... a th- uh, just like a big 3D arena, and you mm-hmm. run around and hammer on each other. Oh, fair enough. Um, yeah, I mean... In a lot of ways, it's a fighting game, right? Because you're it's usually one-on-one, or two-on-two, or whatever, and... Um, you it, you know there's a heavy it's all about timing and distance and understanding the range of your attacks and the way the the way they move and you know if you get close enough you shift into a melee mode but it's a it's a big arena because there's a lot of emphasis on um, the actual maneuvering of the robots like running around to dodge the attacks and you can boost to dodge missiles and stuff so yeah. there's there's a heavy distance and ranged game associated with it okay one, one to take a look at, definitely. Like I say, it's a series I have no experience with whatsoever. It's one of the Sega franchises that has sort of passed me by over the years. So, yeah, definitely interested to take a look. Yeah, yeah, they're a lot of fun. I'm sure you can find the PS2 one pretty inexpensively, which was quite good because the PS2 one came out in an era where dual sticks were actually default on controllers. Yeah. The, the home versions of Virtual On historically have been not so great to get because on the Dreamcast and the Saturn, mm. unless you could afford to get the, ver- the, the twin stick accessories, which also mm. rarely came out in the US, the control schemes were rather convoluted because oh. the whole point of the game was this twin stick setup. Oh, you, you're giving me out trigger flashbacks. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I love out trigger, but that's a beast to play on the controller. I love that there's a control scheme in that where you hold the controller upside down. <laughs> <laughs> is there? Yeah. That's incredible. Like, like one of the later ones is just you hold it upside down and do it that way around instead. It's ridiculous. Oh. Now there is a company making a twin stick um, that's going to be compatible with this. Uh, Tanita. And they act, They funded, they did it on uh, a crowdsourcing 
platform to get this twin stick funded and it was originally getting made for another virtual and spin-off game that sega was doing with that a certain magical index anime they they crossed them up for some reason and made a certain magical (laughs) virtual on like which doesn't make any sense to me but whatever it means more virtual on so i'm cool with it um and they had announced this stick in order to be compatible with that game in order to give you you know proper virtual on control um but then as soon as this three pack for the playstation network was announced (coughs) it instantly got funded within 12 hours yeah, like people are nuts <laughs> for the virtual on twin sticks. It's crazy. Excellent. Well, sounds good. Sounds like the sort of game that where sort of the tactile experience is almost as much as almost as important as the actual game itself. Sort of actually gripping onto those two big sticks like that. Yeah, it's fantastic. So, well, I'll keep an eye out for that then. Okay, doke. Um, other stuff. Um, looking back, it's actually quite a quite a bit happened. I thought I hadn't posted much in our news channel recently, but uh, yeah, there's uh, an odd thing. Um, little thing. Uh, there's a game called uh, Oh, how the hell do you pronounce this? Crawler, I think. Crawler Sigma is coming to Switch in November. Um, this is a game that came out a while back. It was originally a Japanese indie PC game. Um, Playism published it. And it's a sort of hack and slash game inspired by uh, Devil May Cry's Bloody Palace mode, I think. Did I get the name of that right? I think so. Yeah, so it, it's sort of um, hack and slash arena-based combat with a strong focus on like combos and chaining kills together and that sort of thing. And it's, uh, it's really good fun. It's had a release on PC, Vita and PS4 so far, but it's coming to Switch in Japan uh, beginning of November, actually, so very soon. Um... I don't think they've announced whether or not there's going to be a Western version of it yet, but since there's already a localization, there's no reason why there shouldn't be, so... Yeah, I'm optimistic. Um, Yeah. I'm also hoping one of the limited press houses picks up on it, because I know Limited Run did the PS4 and Vita version. Yes, yes. Yes, that'd be nice, because that's a fun game. I mean, it's quite simple and short, but it's got that kind of arcade appeal where it's very, very replayable, so there's lots of different routes through the major story mode, there's time attack and score attack modes and stuff, so... Yeah, it's it's a really fun game. And there's so. unlockables, right? Like there's there's emphasis for replay because there's char- extra characters and different weapons and stuff. Yes, yes, that's right. So and then all those different weapons handle in different ways and they have their own special abilities. So yeah, there's a surprising amount of substance to it. Like I say, it's got a very sort of um, arcade game feel to it in a lot of ways, which we like very much. So okay, uh, continuing on, um, uh, Takahashi from Monolith Soft has said that he would like to bring. Xenoblade Chronicles Cross to Switch, um, but it would be difficult. <laughs> yeah, well, considering how um, integral the the touchscreen control is to the way that game is designed. Yeah, although his although his his comments seem to indicate that it wasn't so much the um, the dual screen stuff that would be a challenge because I mean you could in practice you could just sort of do a switch screen thing on that yeah but, with the menu um, or whatever. But his main challenge was sort of the the sort of budgetary constraints of re- recreating it in sort of, sort of higher resolution and oh. make, making better advantage of the Switch hardware. So, to be honest, I'll be happy with just a straight port. Yeah, I don't need it to be um, enhanced at all. Yeah, exactly. It's already a beautiful um, so, game stylistically. Yeah. You know, the, the graphics aren't so realistic that it requires a huge upgrade. Like, th- there's just enough of a cartoon CG style to it that it's one of those games that's going to age well no matter what. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, it's got it's got the sort of cartoony CG style on the characters, and then it's got that 
gorgeous sort of stylized landscape stuff like that one region that's like straight off on Roger Dean art cover and that mm-hmm. sort of thing gorgeous so yeah I'd, I'd be happy with a straight port of that but yeah, apparently he wants to he wants to do it properly um, god god forbid um, <laughs> uh, but yeah he would like to do that but there's no no news on that actually happening Takahashi's um, whole entire philosophy on life is like go big or go home like he, yeah. he'd rather do as we've seen in his throughout his entire career. Like he'd rather be so ambitious with a project that it doesn't get completed properly than start it yeah. than start it with reasonable expectations. So I guess I shouldn't yeah. expect anything less from him. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, I mean, like the very concept of the first Xenoblade Chronicles was was I want to make a game where you're running around on the backs of two giant gods, and and he did it. So fair play to him. So, huh. on a related note. Um, the Warriors Orochi 4 producer apparently considered including some Nintendo characters uh, and also sees some potential in Xenoblade Warriors, which is quite exciting. Yes, please. Um, <laughs> Give mm. this to me. Yes, I'd, I'd, I'd be very, very happy with that. So um, this was a comment from uh, Masaki Furusawa, um, who said that uh, they they thought about incorporating um, specifically some Hyrule and Fire Emblem Warriors characters into Warriors Orochi 4, but his comment was that he was focused on delving deeply into the Dynasty Warriors and Samurai Warriors casts, and he didn't want to include an incomplete cast from the other games because it would be disrespectful towards the fans. Um, which I think is code for whoever we included, people would moan about it. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, um, that would be cool to see. I mean, there's a lot of franchises I think could really uh, do well with the with the Warriors. So I, th- I think definitely Xenoblade's got enough characters to do that well. Um, this article I'm reading on Go Nintendo at the moment, they also suggest uh, Ease would be a good one. Uh, Final Fantasy is the obvious one. Dragon Quest has sort of had it already with Dragon Quest Heroes. Mm, those are um, great games. But yeah, yeah, lots of potential, definitely. I had I had one a little while ago and I've lost it. I, I used to yeah, something me and my buddies used to do was just like sit around and fantasize about you know warriors, <laughs> all, like what warriors <laughs> games we wanted. But I don't know. Turns out Hyrule Warriors is the only video game you ever need to own until you die. It's true. It's true. <laughs> so yeah, these licensed. Ugh. I play more licensed warriors games than I do. Um, Actual, I could, I couldn't tell you the last actual Dynasty Warriors game I bought. I think it was four on the PS2. Like I've been on the license train ever since. <laughs> I've played a few Dynasty Warriors over the years, but my my recent video series on Warriors of Rochi is the first sort of um, vaguely mainline Warriors games that I played for a long time, and even that's really a spin-off. So, but um, yeah, I've been enjoying Warriors of Rochi so far. Very keen to get to four, but um, sort of I've kind of dug my own grave with this video series now because I thought, yeah, I'll play all of them. Warriors <laughs> <laughs> games are huge. I don't know what you were thinking. They're all infinite games. Well, I mean, even even Warriors of Rochi, which has a really simple structure, like all Warriors of Rochi is, is it's got um, a story for each of the main factions. But even that's like sixteen missions long. Yeah, well, they're huge. So multiply that by yeah, multiply that by four. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to read something out so I can suck on a soother for a bit? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, little, Just little bullet point stuff. Uh, my girl Christy has been announced for Dead or Alive 6. Um, Very nice. I'm sure no one doubted it, but I'm still excited because she's my favorite. Um, Dead or Alive 6 is looking so good. <laughs> I recently read an article where they specifically talked about how they're em- trying to 
emphasize and distinguish the series by making sure to double down on the silliness of it, which yeah. I think is fantastic because yeah, definitely, uh, it's always been silly. So. Yeah, um, you know, there's there's been screenshots of like new environments and stuff for six where there's like dinosaurs traipsing around in the background it like doesn't even doesn't yeah. even make sense like the screen like the the stage transitions that started in two or you know continuing you know when you can there is no ring outs like if you knock a person out of a ring out they tumble down a hill fall like 200 feet onto a different stage like yep. it's just i i love dead or alive i love its irreverence yeah. and I, I love how much fun it is to play um you know a lot of people have been hyping up soul caliber 6 um and talking about how you know one of the things that's always been great about soul caliber was it's always been one of the fighting games where even you don't have to spend hours to practice to make it look cool and have fun. Like it's always been mm-hmm. one of the most casual, accessible fighters. And I would very much argue that Dead or Alive sick that the Dead or Alive series is like that as well. Like I have many fond memories of having Dead or Alive nights with people who barely play video games at all. Yeah. Yeah, same. I mean Dead or Alive's kind of interesting because it's got kind of two layers to its mechanics. So there's there's like there is the sort of um you could sort of get away with button mashing and sort of wiggling the stick around to a certain degree and do do cool stuff with that. But then on top of that, if you look at the actual sort of combo strings in there, there's some very complicated stuff. In oh, there. it's so, so technical. So the, the, yeah. So the people who enjoy that kind of thing could get uh, could get something out of it as well. And then there's also stuff like the countering system as well, which is one of my favorite things about the game. When I do it right, I hate it when I can't do it. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, <so. laughs> yeah. Dead or Alive's emphasis on throws and counters specifically, right? Because uh, wrestling is such a huge part of Dead or Alive's identity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a. I just love Dead or Alive, so I'm very, very jazzed. Not just because I love the character design, blah, 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 but I just really, I really think it's a solid series and always has been. So. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I bought the. You know, when I was on the fence about the 360, it was Dead or Alive 4 that <laughs> made me buy the 360. Mm-hmm. In the in the end, it's just a long, long history of loving this series. Uh, more fighting game announcements. <laughs> um, SNK Heroines has announced its next DLC character, and for fans of the original SNK Gals fighters on the uh, Neo Geo Pocket, like myself, will be excited to know that it is Miss X, which <laughs> who is the villain from the original Gals fighters, who is just Iori in a dress, which <laughs> which is hilarious. Um, so I, there were some people who were pretty pissed that Miss X wasn't in. Uh, SNK Heroines originally, so I think a lot of people are going to be really happy about this one. Uh, yeah, for sure. Let me see here. Um, the Medieval remake has been discussed a little bit in the recent news. Um, we've known for a while that Sony was batting some stuff around with bringing Medieval back, mm-hmm. um, but there was a lot of lack of clarity as to whether or not we were going to be getting a remaster or a full remake. Um, and now it's been clarified that what we are indeed getting is a full from the ground up n- newly developed remake of the original Medieval. So we're not it's not going to be like Medieval Collection. Like it's mm-hmm. an actual from the ground up remake of the original. Um, mm. I-, I wish it was both. <laughs> because I because I I want to play the original ones again, but um I'm just I'm so happy that Sony hasn't forgotten and given up on this series because they're wonderful games. Mm. 
Yeah, I never actually played these ones back in the day, so it'll be interesting to, to take a look at them. And hey, while they're revisiting series, they could always, uh, you know, they could always bring back Wild Arms as well, couldn't they? Oh, no, why would you even say that? <laughs> why? Why I, Why would you do wanted, that to me? <laughs> I just I just wanted to say about you. Yeah, there we go. But I mean, <laughs> in reality, though, um, if Sony really wants to delve into their old PS1 library, like, mm. let's bring back Legend of Dragoon, please, folks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, with the style the visual style of the original legend of dragoon was so stunning to like have something set in that universe on modern hardware would be unbelievable so let's do that <laughs> yeah yeah that'll be cool all right all right um continue on uh we've got news that there is another new atelier game on the way uh this one is actually going to be the fourth Arland game, which is interesting, because um, up until now, the Atelier games have been done in trilogies. So there was the Arland trilogy, then there was the Dusk trilogy, then there was the Mysterious trilogy. Uh, but this is actually going back to a trilogy that they did on the PS3 era. The new game's called Atelier Lulua, um, who is the daughter of Rowena, who is the protagonist of the first Arland game. Um, so, uh, they have ruined a lot of people's uh, lesbian ships in the process. <laughs> uh, un un unless she is adopted. There is still conjecture that she might be an adopted daughter, in which case people will still be happy about that. But, uh, yeah. Um, so, it's um, it's a new game in, in the series. Um, it's looking like, like an Atelier game, basically. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, they they are apparently sort of uh, focusing on making the crafting system similar to the Arlen series. So one of the things each of the trilogies has done is they've done slightly different things with the way the crafting system works. So in this they're sort of making a return to uh, what they did in the Arlen games, which is to do with sort of uh, combining the right ingredients to get various traits and different bits of quality and stuff. Um, but in combat, they're also using some of the stuff that they learned from the the most recent games, the Mysterious series as well. So, um, yeah, lots of screenshots and stuff around at the minute. Not a huge amount of details about gameplay so far, but um, yeah, it's, it's certainly looking like a nice successor to the other Island games. So, um, just trying to see if there's a release date at the moment. I don't think there is. Uh, but they have confirmed already that it's going to be coming west, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, again, not really a surprise these days because every previous Atelier game has come west so far. But it's always nice to get uh, confirmation early on. Do we have a release date for the other one that's buttoning up right now? The, the, the kind of like the best of one? Uh, let me have a look. Because that Italian one I'm actually Nelke. pretty interested in. Mm. Italian Nelke, that one's called, cool, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. That's the one with the town building and like all the characters make returns. So it's, um, yeah, it will release in Japan in 2018, and according to the Italia Wiki, will be released in the West in winter 2018 to 2019. Okay. So towards the end of the towards the end of the year. So uh, that's actually not that long after um, Japan, because Japan's supposed to be releasing on December 13th, from the look of things. Mm. So that's that's a pretty quick turnaround. But um, Curry Tecmo seems to be getting quite good at turning these around quickly or even developing localizations alongside the um, the Japanese versions at the moment because they know there's a market for these. So it would make sense for them to do that. Sure. Which is good. So, yeah, watch out for that towards the end of the year from the sound of things. 
Um, going back to Xseed for a moment, uh, they have announced that they are going to be bringing four Corpse Party games to PC starting this month. So these are going to include uh, Corpse Party Book of Shadows, which is the sort of sequel slash spin-off to the first game. Um, so rather than being a straight sequel, what this is, is uh, there's a series of, of side stories uh, that either relate to the characters in the original game and put them in different scenarios um, or show what was happening elsewhere while other things, while the things you were watching in the first game was going on. And then the final chapter of that uh, leads into the actual sequel, which is Blood Drive, which came out on Vita uh, a year or two back. Um, which is also coming to PC. Uh, and then probably the biggest surprise is they are bringing... Um, Corks Party's Sweet Sasha Goes Hysteric Birthday Bash. <laughs> this is the one that interests me the most because it's the stupid yeah. one. Yeah. So, this is described as the missing link in the Corpse Party saga, now coming to English-speaking audiences officially for the very first time. So, for those not familiar uh, with Corpse Party, Sachiko is the sort of the main antagonist. She's a sort of a vengeful spirit. Um, and she has killed a lot of people in hideously violent ways. So, the concept of this game... Sachiko Shinazaki, the vengeful spirit responsible for the deaths of countless children and adults alike, is turning seven again. Being <laughs> dead, she never truly ages. And is thus graciously granting her victims 24 hours of amnesty so they can serve as guests at her birthday party. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the concept of this game is that you are attending a vengeful spirit's birthday party and um, sort of playing out various activities for her amusement. Um, so it's got sort of comedic elements as, as well as the horror side of things, but uh, it's one that's, that hasn't come west at all as yet, so that's quite exciting. Uh, and then finally, uh, they're also bringing Corpse Party 2. <laughs> you know, the, the fifth game in the series is Corpse Party 2. Um, <laughs> oh, Japan. <laughs> um, yeah, so that is um, an actual full-on sequel, I think, with a, a brand new cast. It sounds as if this, um, they've kind of sort of moved on from these sort of uh, visual novel style gameplay. So it sounds like there's going to be more in the way of puzzles and stuff in this as well. Uh, inventory based uh, objects, um, sort of actually uh, avoiding enemies and stuff as well. There was a little bit of that in the original one, but uh, it was mostly about finding event triggers. Um, yeah, so it's a standalone story, so you can jump in without being familiar with the previous ones. Uh, but again, obviously, as with all the other ones, you'll probably get more out of it if you have some familiarity with the characters. And so, um, I don't think they've given specific dates for any of these as yet, but um, they are sort of starting... Corpse Party Book of Shadows is coming out on the 29th of October, so by the, by the time you listen to this, it will probably be out... That will be on Steam, GOG, and the Humble Store. It's already available on PSP, I think, rather than Vita. But you you can download and play it on Vita. Um, Sachiko's Birthday Bash just says Winter 2018. Same for Blood Drive and same for Corpse Bodies 2. So, um, yeah, so those are all on the way. And they will all be out by the end of the year from the sound of things. Which is quite exciting. Okay, anything else? Yeah, uh, this one's really cool. Uh, so, many moons ago, back on the PSP days, even before the rise of Yokai Watch, um, <laughs> Level 5, uh, a studio I'm quite fond of, as many people are, I imagine, was developing a horror themed RPG called Ushiro. 
um, and this game never came to fruition. It was kind of teased and shared a little bit in some early magazines. Um, it has now been confirmed that the Ushiro project has been revived and will now be produced to completion for the Switch. Oh. Um, so, as we'll talk about later, um, I like games with spooky, macabre horror settings. So, um, the idea of a spooky ghost-themed RPG for the Switch from Level 5, who I always enjoy their art style and their approaches, um, is really exciting to me. I, I don't have much in the way of details, but uh, this is great news. It's really cool when a project gets revived from the dead. Uh, it's appropriate for the spooky season. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know a lot about this, but um, people seem to be excited about this making a comeback, so yeah, all for it. It's it's nice that developers feel that they can do this now. So sort of stuff that's been on the back burner for a long time in many cases that they they feel that they they've got the freedom to bring these things back now. So yeah, it makes me it happy. Like, yeah, <laughs> judging from the Famitsu interview with this, it, it sounds like Level Five has sort of had this on their release schedule for a very long time, <laughs> and um, uh, according to. Um, the president of the company, Akihiro Hino, people sort of kept saying to him, are you going to take that off the release schedule? And he was like, nah, leave it there. <laughs> um, so they, yeah, so they decided to bring it to, to Switch in the end, just to get it off the whiteboard, I guess. That's <laughs> always funny how, like, every now and then a developer will get so, like, attached to a, a weird project like this, like a baby project, mm. and they just can't let it go. It always works out well for us, though. Yeah, definitely. All right. Any more stories to talk about? That's all I had. Yeah, I think that's everything I had as well. Yeah, looks like it. Okay, let's take a short break then. I will go and have a coughing fit off uh, off mic, and then uh, we'll come <laughs> back and talk a little bit about uh, about what we've been playing recently. So we'll see you in a moment. Welcome back. Uh, for our second segment, we normally talk about what we've been playing recently. It's probably going to be quite a short one for me this week because uh, there's not a huge amount of different things I've been playing, but I've got a couple of things regardless. Um, how about you, Chris? Uh, I have been playing Dead Cells. I finally got my hands on a copy of Dead Cells. Ah, yes. Tell me uh, about it. It's quite delightful. Um, I hate to use the term Metroidvania, but um, so a lot of people have been using that um, in concert with describing the way Dead Cells plays, but I don't really think it's appropriate. Mm. Um, so Dead Cells is a side-scrolling roguelite um, where w when you die, you start all over every time, um, and it's large, explorable stages, um, kind of in the Metroidvania vein, but I don't like to describe it as a Metroidvania because one of the things that describes Metroidvanias <laughs> is... Um, unlocking abilities progressively that allow you to return to places you've been before and then yeah. progress further. Um, there's a bit of that in Dead Cells, but you can't 
So like if you beat a boss and you unlock a new ability that's static, you can't actually go back to the previous area to use it. You have to wait until you die, and then you have that ability on the next run. Right. So it doesn't have the same backtracking, which I think is kind of a hallmark of Metroidvania design. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's not too much of a spoiler because it's the first thing you get. But um, one of the first abilities you get in Dead Cells is the ability to uh, uh, find these clumps of greenery that you can make a vine grow out of. You can climb the vine then. Mm -hmm. um, so the first time you play the game, you will f you're in a prison is always the first area. And you can find those clumps of greenery in the prison, but you can't do anything about them. Um once you unlock the ability to summon that vine, you can basically choose in the first stage a branching path, whether or not you want to go to the outdoor kind of wooded area as stage two, or whether or not you want to go to the sewer as stage two, because you okay. couldn't you couldn't access the sewer until you had the vine summoning ability. Mm. So there is hints of that Metroidvania style in the fact that you unlock more content, which then alters the progress you can make through the game, but you cannot backtrack as part of that exploration it, it happens in truncated stages mm. uh it's very good though um I'm, I'm loving it one of the things that's great about it is it's very kinetic yeah um the movement and the combat itself are extremely well thought out um there's a great sense of weight and movement um and there's a heavy emphasis on um speed running it um so every stage you get to after stage one, there's a door with a timer on it. So if you get to stage two, and I think it's three minutes, that door will remain unlocked, and then you can go in there and get more power-ups. Oh, if, if you take longer than three minutes to get to stage two, that door is locked, and then you can't get those power-ups. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to play the, the classic uh, roguelike mind game, where it's, do I linger in stage one, where I know the enemies are easy, collect some money, collect some resources, or do I blast through it and get myself to stage two in a, knowing I'll be in a weaker state when I get there in order for this big payoff. Mm. So that's kind of the mind games it makes you play. Um, and it's typical roguelite side-scroller, so some enemies and treasure chests will drop, quote, cells, and you use those cells in the safe spaces between stages to unlock um, new items or abilities, which will then spawn as enemy drops on your next runs. Yeah. So with each run, you become progressively more powerful or at least unlock the potential to spice your runs up more and more and more. Mm -hmm. So like when you begin each run, you're always given the choice between for your secondary weapon, a shield or a bow and arrow. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things you can unlock with your cells at one point is the ability for the shield or the bow and arrow to be randomized from the ranged weapons or shields that you've unlocked throughout your play. Yeah. So now when I get to the part where you choose either the shield or the bow, Sometimes it's not a bow. Sometimes it's a fireball spell that causes progressive burn damage. Sometimes it's an ice spell that can freeze. Sometimes it's a different bow that causes bleed damage. So the more you play, the more possibility it has for your runs to become different and different and different based on the mm. weapon loadouts you're offered. Yeah. 
Am I right in thinking that the the sort of weapons and skills and stuff they're all cooldown based rather than resource based? Aren't they? Is that right? Well, um, you there's you have four you can have four weapons equipped at once, right? So you have a primary and secondary weapon which are equipped to your regular face buttons. Your, those are right. your standard attacks. So your your sword and your bow and arrow or a spell. Um, okay. th those are not. Um, and there's no kind of management associated with those. You can just jam on them, like attack with your combos or fire your your bow and arrow. Will have ammo, but that ammo regenerates over time, or you can collect the arrows back from enemies once you defeat them. Okay. So there's not really any resource management there. Um, on your triggers, however, you get skills. Um, those skills are things like uh, bear traps. Um, one of my favorite ones to use is it's a uh, like a crossbow sentry that you just plunk down and it fires arrows. Um, you you can get grenades with varying effects. Those all have cooldowns associated with them. Okay. And then depending on the way you choose to upgrade your character, you may be able to reduce those cooldowns. So um, the way you progress as a character in each run is you find scrolls. Um, that allow you to upgrade one of your three stats. So your character has three stats. Uh, brutality. Um, oh boy, I don't remember the name. I don't remember what like the game's special names are, right? But like They're like red, green, the, and blue, aren't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's red, green, and purple. So the red one, I think, is brutality. That's pretty much what you expect. That's your standard... Um, physical attacking so that that basically upgrades your ability to do damage with a melee weapon um the green is survival which gives you if you choose survival upgrade when you find a scroll it usually imparts a higher health growth bonus to your health pool than the other two the other three the other two i'm sorry um and that usually affects um survival related items so usually shields um which i never use um <laughs> The purple is skills, and that's really where it ties into the more interesting items to use. Um, so skills are things like, uh, you can get like shurikens or the different types of traps I was just describing. Um, and that will also generally uh, reduce your cooldown with those or enhance, um, you get enhancements as well called mutations. Yeah. And um, what you choose when you make your character upgrades also ties into those mutations. So you may choose a mutation that reduces the cooldown on your on your traps, and then every time you upgrade the skills stat, once you've chosen that mutation, will also further enhance that mutation. So you may start out with a twenty percent cooldown reduction. Next time you enhance skill when you get a character upgrade, it may go to a twenty five percent cooldown right. reduction to that. Or you may get a, a mutation that gives you health regen as long as you're in a certain range of one of your traps. Um, so there's really, within the active gameplay, interesting ways to craft builds for your character and experiment with that. Which, of course, all become null and void as soon as you die, you're back to square one. But it's, it's great because of the throwaway nature of the roguelite loop. Every run is a new experience, so every run is a new opportunity to experiment with a different build quickly like within 15 minutes yeah. you know it, yeah. it's it's a lot of fun i'm having a lot of fun with it yeah cool I, I i did play it very briefly um last time i saw my brother when he came over to visit he brought his switch and his copy of dead cells so um i had, I had a brief chance to play it and yeah it left a very 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 good impression on me but uh, i haven't picked up my own copy yet but uh, 
I certainly agree with what you've said, that especially things like the sort of feeling of um, sort of kinetic energy in it, like the just a combination of the animations and the sound effects and stuff. It just feels like there's like a really nice sense of impact to everything you do, and that makes it yeah. really satisfying to play. So, yeah, definitely, that's big for me. Like, yeah. I really have I really have a problem with games that don't emphasize that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, well, it makes it it makes a huge difference, and it's a thing that's often skimped on or, or or not considered to be important by some developers and it's yeah it it really is important it's one of those things that i i find western developers tend to ignore like i find a lot of western games have a feeling of weightlessness to them like even like like even huge games that have like massive budgets like i always find um i can't say this about the modern ones because I haven't played some of the most recent entries, but like it's a problem I often had with Assassin's Creed. It was like everything uh-huh. f- for a game about verticality, everything felt so weightless to me, and the combat yeah. always felt like it lacked yeah. impact. Well, I'm not sure if weightless is the word I'd use because I, 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 as we've discussed a couple of times before, I, I often find a lot of modern 3D Western games to be too sort of heavy feeling. Um, oh, but, okay. But that's that's largely down to sort of the animations and stuff. I think just the fact that um like when you're trying to move for example you 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 don't just push a direction and you move in that direction like you do in like a a japanese action game you your character has the animation of them turning around and stuff like that and that for Mm -hmm. me that 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 in some ways that's good it gives you a feeling of of sort of physical presence and stuff but it it really sucks for sort of preciseness of control and stuff like that It, it it makes me feel like i'm in less control of what's going on like it, I find it particularly apparent in um, sort of open world games. Like I, I struggled with it a bit in Horizon Zero Dawn. Uh, Rockstar's yeah. games are very bad for it. Like Grand Theft Auto V is full of this sort of thing. Made it very difficult to move around and feel like you're in complete control of your character. Um, and like I say, it's it's a balancing act. And like some people do like it because th- th- there is that that feeling of physical presence in the world that this approach brings. But at the same time, you do that at the expense of precise and uh, responsive control so it's a, it's a difficult one really mm-hmm. hit stun is is the word I'm, I'm looking for uh, yes 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 hit stun is huge and so prevalent in japanese games and it's not particularly pre- prevalent in, in large american games um yes and I agree with that. Yeah. it's so integral for me to understand combat like i get combat when it has hit stun and i don't feel connected to it when it's missing yeah yeah, I'd agree and, with that. And, and Dead Cells has some chunky hits done. It's, it's, <laughs> it's really good. Especially when you get like the big two-handed broadsword weapon. Yeah. It's just weighty and meaty and oh, it feels so good. Like, I'm banging my head against this game. I haven't even beaten the first boss. But, <laughs> but, but I just keep coming back for more and more runs because it feels so good to play. Well, that's good. That's what it's designed for, isn't it? So... It's good that it's uh, working as intended from the sound of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope to see more from this studio in the future. Yeah, definitely. Okay, um, as for me, most of the stuff I've been playing is for this month's cover game feature on Project Zero, which I want to talk a bit more about in our third segment, so I won't mention it too much now. Um, one thing I will bring up for what I've been playing, though, is that... Um, at the time of recording, uh, Playism is currently having a sale on Steam. By the time you listen to this, I think it'll just be coming into its final hours. So um, hop in there quickly if you get a chance. And if you missed it, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I, I did mention it on Twitter. Um, 
The Playism uh, for the Unfamiliar are a uh, publisher of a lot of Japanese indie games for PC. So they brought us stuff like uh, Lamulana, um, Asterbreed, um, trying to think of some other things that people might know. But yeah, they've, they've got a fairly, fairly large library of uh, independently developed Japanese games. Um, and their sale on Steam is, is fairly generous at the minute. There's uh, quite a few things you can get for sort of $5 or less. So I picked up a couple of things that sounded interesting, and uh, uh, to be honest, I just had a quick go on them before we started recording here, because I, I, I picked them up today, because I only became aware of the sale today. One of them is a shoot-em-up uh, called Murasaki, uh, which is uh, kind of kind of strange, in that it's not a conventional shoot-em-up. Uh, you can only fire one bullet at a time. It's kind of based on, um, if anything, it's quite similar to uh, Every Extend Extra. If you're familiar oh, with that. okay, sure. Um, so it's all to do with sort of explosions and chain reactions and stuff. So what happens is enemies come on the screen, uh, they fire bullets, and there's these coloured blocks uh, that gradually sort of spawn in and appear. And if you shoot one of those, it will bounce a little bit around the screen and then it will explode. And you can you can chain react those blocks together if they're the same colour. So like, shoot one of the red ones, it will bounce up and down the screen. If it explodes and catches another red block in that, that red block will also explode and so on. Um, and any bullets that are caught in that uh, explosion of those blocks uh, will either sort of just score your points, uh, or if there's a particular enemy on the screen like a boss, it will fire those bullets back at the boss. Um, and so what, what you end up doing is uh, dodging bullets in a sort of bullet hell style. So it's got the usual sort of tiny hitbox on, on your character, which you need to, to learn how to sort of negotiate the bullet patterns and so on. But then rather than attacking things directly, because your, your basic attack is so weak, you can just do this single shot at a time. Uh, you have to do it all with chain reactions and, and stuff like that. You, have, you also have a special ability where... You charge it up by pressing a button, and then you have a sort of shield comes up around you, which first of all will cancel bullets, and then it will fire out shots all around you, which will set off all the chain reactions and explosions as well. So it's a really simple idea. I've only played it for a little bit so far, but that seems like uh, a lot of fun that I want to spend a bit more time with. So that's uh, Murasaki, and that is developed by... Let me just have a look. Um, developed by Katatima, which I'm not familiar with um it in terms of sort of presentation and stuff it's um it's kind of uh presented in a similar sort of way to like the old toho games and stuff like that so it's um, oh so it's very very low resolution uh runs in like 640 by 480 with no display options and such like but then there's these sort of nonsensical story sequences that pop up when bosses appear and stuff like that so it's got a very distinctive look and feel to it as well so um yeah it's worth a look if you enjoy that kind of thing uh, I'm just looking at this sale. This sale is not fooling around. You yeah. can get one-way heroics with the plus expansion for like six dollars. Yeah. Um, this that's, is some good. This is some Ace of Seafood for six dollars. Yeah, there's some really good stuff in it. So yeah, if if you if you happen to get in there in time, uh, yeah, do do have a look at that. And these these games are all worth your time anyway, and not a lot of money at full price anyway. So. Yeah. Um, Astabreed definitive at half price. Astabreed is an amazing shoot 'em up, definitely. Uh, if you if you like giant robots, uh, ridiculous storylines, and amazing music, Astabreed is definitely worth your time. Um, the other that one that I specifically picked up this time um, is uh, Hakoniwa Explorer Plus. I was just going to mention that. How yeah. is it? I, it's it's really fun. It's um, 
So this is a, uh, I think it's voxel based. So it has it has a sort of isometric pixel art look, but it's all built with voxels. Um, and it's uh, kind of like, um, I'm trying to think what it, what it plays a bit like. I guess there's sort of elements of like Landstalker and stuff in there, in that you're sort of uh, wandering around, you're attacking things, you're jumping on platforms and stuff like that. Um, it's got this really irreverent sense of humor about it, which is, which is really nice. So like, um, you, you you can like grab any character's ass just by trying to talk to them from behind for example and some of them get really <laughs> pissy at you um it's like in the in the first screen if you accidentally stand on a cat's tail everyone will come and attack you and that sort of thing and um the the main tutorial girl is uh like a girl in a school swimsuit and if you talk to her from behind just her portrait just becomes her ass jiggling around and then she tells you off for being a pervert and stuff and yeah it's it, it's just delightfully irreverent all the way through but it, it plays quite solidly as well um, and it looks lovely. It's got this lovely, like I say, sort of 16-bit pixel art aesthetic to it. But because it's built with voxels, um, it's got the flexibility to sort of do some fancy effects and things with it. Uh, one of the interesting things about it is that although it's presented a bit like um, kind of a role-playing game, it's a bit more freeform than you might expect from this sort of thing. So basically, you start... The first the first thing you do is it, it, it does tell you to sort of ask around the village for things, and it will give you your first quest that way. But from that point onwards, um, from what I can tell that I've played so far, I've only played about half an hour or so uh, at the time of recording, but from what I can tell is you, you basically just go places that look interesting, and you go in that place, and you, like, say there's a lighthouse, you climb your way to the top of the lighthouse, and you'll find a viewpoint at the top, and you'll see, oh, I can see an island off in the distance, maybe I'll go there next. And it says if you wander southwest from this island, you'll find this you'll, you'll find this new dungeon and so on. And it just it, I mean it's there in the title. It's Hakoniwa it, Explorer. So you you wander around, you explore things, you level up, you find new equipment. It seems like a lot of fun so far. As I say this is based on just half an hour with it, but it's uh, yeah entertaining. All I know about this game is it's a it's beautiful. Um, B some of the bosses are really cute monster girls. Most of the buses are cute monster girls. Yeah. And there is yeah. there is an item specifically designed to uh, dissolve people's clothing. <laughs> so you... you Purchased. Throw... Yes, exactly. Overwhelmingly positive reviews. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, like I say, I, only mild frustration I found with it so far is um, you seem to have a very limited inventory space and actually managing that inventory is a little bit fiddly. Um, oh, that's unfortunate. But, but um, you can get get around that in certain ways. Like the um, the swimsuit girl, who is the tutorial girl, she will store items for you and that sort of thing. So, I think it's more just a case of of knowing that you don't need to pick everything up, and not everything is going to be important. It's also got things like item durability and stuff as well. So your weapons aren't going to last forever. So after a while, you will have to find new equipment and that sort of thing. But you're also not completely helpless if you're unarmed as well. For example, this first quest where you go and beat slimes because RPG, um, it, it actually specifically recommends that you go and fight them with your bare hands because uh, slimes will dissolve items of equipment more quickly. And so if you fight, oh, them, interesting. And so if you go and fight them with your fist, you will do a bit less damage, but you won't be wasting the durability on your equipment. So, yeah, definitely an interesting one. And uh, like I say, it's twenty percent off at the time of recording. So, worth a look. There's some really neat stuff in the sale. Mm, yes. What is Break Arts 2? It's like a giant robot racing game. How have I never heard of this? 
Yeah, actually, I saw that one earlier. I haven't picked that one up yet, but um, it, yeah, it does sound interesting and appealing. But yeah, there's some really cool stuff in there. Like the most well-known stuff is things like, uh, like we said, Aster Breed is good. Um, Revolver Lama Luana. Lama definitely. Uh, Revolver 360 Reactor is really cool as well. That's the sort of cylindrical shoot 'em up where Yeah, um, this is cool. So in that one, you can use the shoulder buttons to actually sort of rotate the screen perspective. So if there is a screen-filling pattern of bullets coming towards you, you can just rotate the screen through 90 degrees so that they're all on the same plane. You can just like go above or below them. So that that's a really clever shoot 'em up. Um, so yeah, players and stuff really solid. Generally, well worth a look. Okay, um, anything else you've been playing? You want to bring up? Not anything seriously. I did have a chance last night at a friend's house to check out a game called Yoku's Island Express that I just oh, want yes. to give a mention. Yes. Um, it, it's really, really cute and bright and colorful and happy, and which I love. Um, and the whole thing about Yoku's Island Express is it is a, also a Metroidvania. Uh, hmm. So it's a big, big open side-scroller. Um, but it is also pinball. Interesting. So you play as this little cute dung beetle looking dude who like rolls a ball around and he's like tethered to the ball. Mm. Um, and you don't have a jump button. Right. So you, you can just move left, move him left or right as the situation demands. Um, but then the world is just full of pinball flippers and bumpers. And that's your primary method of interacting with the world and getting places. Hmm. Is lining is lining up pinball shots and shooting yourself through tubes and rails, and just the whole world is built around this mobility via pinball. Um, it brings me back to the old like eight-bit pinball quest on the Nintendo, which <laughs> uh, me and my friends used to love. Uh, so yeah, just it's worth checking out. It's really cute and it's a really neat idea. Um, I don't own it. I haven't played it much. Like I said, I just checked out the demo, but yeah, I, I, I would highly recommend checking it out. It's really cool. Yeah, some um, Team Seventeen, isn't it? I think. Um, yeah, at least published by them. I don't, mm. I don't, I don't think they developed it because they have a publication arm now. Yes, yeah. it's developed by Villa Gorilla. Oh, okay, not heard of them. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, yeah, it's Team Seventeen's been doing some neat stuff with their publishing arm recently. I mm. got something else from them recently that I thought was pretty good. I can't remember what it was at the time, but so yeah, Yoku's Island Express is really cool, uh, and I know it's available physically too. Oh, cool. Yeah, have a look at that. Eh? It's uh, does sound dangerously close to Knuckle Chaotix in terms of chaining yourself to things and <laughs> that sort of thing. No, no. <laughs> This one yeah. works, I promise. Ah, right. I'll take your word for that. Okay. Um, I think that's probably everything we want to bring up now, unless there's any, any other ones you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, like, n nothing major, for sure. Uh, I did get to fiddle with Soul Calibur Six a little bit. Um, it's Soul Calibur, it's good. The end. Um, <laughs> yeah, not you know, not too much to say there. It feels yeah. good, it feels right. Um, so, yeah, the praise it's been getting in the popular gestalt is totally deserved. It's proper soul caliber. Good stuff. Yeah. Always good to hear. All right, we'll take a short break then, and then we'll come back for our main topic, and I'll talk a little bit more about uh, Project Zero during then. So we'll see you in a moment. Sweet.
Welcome back. So, with it being coming up to Halloween at the time of recording, and by the time you listen to this, we thought we'd have a horror-themed podcast today. Um, now, this should hopefully be quite an interesting discussion, because from what we've discussed offline, we both seem to have quite different uh, views on horror games in particular. Yes. So it's going to be so it's going to be quite intriguing to to see what our different approaches for it. So, um, I just want to ask you then, what, what what does horror mean to you to begin with? Then, oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a loaded question. Uh, just kind of spooky, <laughs> you know, go, ghosts and 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 dark themes and gothic uh-huh. imagery and monsters and. All that, good, so, all that good stuff. So, are you, are you a horror as gore person or a horror as atmosphere person? If we can. Oh, I'm not. I'm much. not big on gore. Um, right. Well, I'm not against it, um, but I'm definitely not like one of those like gore people that like loves right. it, loves it, loves it. Like, like in horror films, which in many of our previous discussions, you will know that I, I'm a big horror film guy. Um, I don't like like quote torture porn end quote like right i don't like when the actual focus of the horror is on gore or mutilation of the body i prefer horror being more of a psychological or narrative thing or 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 thematic thing okay um cool definitely not big on gross out stuff Mm mm-hmm so thinking about the movie side of things to begin with, before we get too much into games, then what what were some of your earliest uh, encounters with horror? Well, I have a very active imagination, uh-huh. <laughs> so like I was one of those kids that get made fun of all the time. Who like I couldn't even walk through a video rental place like through the horror section. I had to, I had to like look at the floor because like if I saw just like a cover, like a, like if I, I remember as a kid specifically the cover of like Pumpkinhead 2 on like VHS. Okay. Just yeah. like if I saw the monster on the cover of a horror movie, like my brain would just immediately go in, into overdrive, not even knowing anything about the film. Yeah. Um, and then I would totally just not sleep for like three days because like I saw Pumpkinhead once like a picture of pumpkin head so <laughs> so like i didn't really get into watching and engaging with hard till i was a bit older like in my teens right. okay. because as a kid i just could i could not handle it i was always curious about it but i but i i couldn't i could not handle it mm-hmm. so i i grew up more like as a kid being with like like spooky but not scary so like yeah. like cutesy halloween like nightmare before christmas kind of stuff Right, okay. Yeah, I was kind of similar for, um, probably for different reasons. I mean, I, I've always also had an overactive imagination, but um, I I didn't have experiences like you described there. But um, I also had, um, I don't want to describe it as a sheltered upbringing, but it's, a, it's, it's probably more just a good upbringing, uh, in that uh, my parents were very strict about the sorts of things that me and my brother were allowed to watch as kids okay so so they they sort of paid close attention to things like the bbfc certificates on films and that sort of thing and so like i wasn't allowed to go anywhere near an 18 rated movie and until well until i i was sort of old enough to prove that i could do so responsibly so probably about sort of 15 or 16 or so um but certainly as a kid i remember being at primary school 
um, sort of year five, year six or so. Uh, so sort of being like 10, 11, 12. Uh, and I remember a lot of my friends and peers talking about um, sort of films that were obviously way too old for them, horror films and that sort of thing. Um, and I, I just had no real concept of what they were talking about just because that, that wasn't really a thing in in my house. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my first contact with horror wasn't was probably even later than you thinking about it because it, it, I, think, I think probably the first genuine horror movie I watched of sorts was probably Scream thinking about it. Okay. Um, which is an interesting one to start with because the whole point of Scream was to sort of be um, a kind of... Uh, deconstruction of the the kind of slasher yeah it's postmodern track, wasn't it yeah yeah it's a self-reflexive horror film it's about yeah horror, it's a horror film about horror films and the tropes of horror films yeah uh, and, and i mean i i understood that i got that because I, I was aware enough of the tropes i just hadn't actually seen any of the films it was sort of referencing or mm-hmm. uh pointing the finger at so um i think sort of my earlier experience with with horror in general before that being the first horror movie I saw was probably with games. So like I played things like Resident Evil and stuff before I really saw any horror movies. Mm. Um, so as far as games go then, uh, can you think of a, a, a horror game that was one of the earliest ones you played? Uh, horror, horror specific... Because like I, I make a pretty big distinction between like games with spooky settings and like design and like characters and like horror. But... I, I think one of the earliest games that I can think of that was like scary and horror would be the original Resident Evil. Okay. I, I remember the, playing the Saturn version of the original Resident Evil. Yeah. And being like scared shitless by like the first cinematic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, I think uh, it was actually slightly earlier than that, thinking about it. I think probably the, the earliest one that sort of stuck with me, there were probably a few before that but i think the only one that stuck with me is the original alone in the dark oh yeah i had that too now that i yeah i think i probably just blocked it out yeah so i mean um alone in the dark is sort of considered to be the the progenitor of sort of fixed camera angle survival horror resident evil that sort of thing and it's it's easy to see why because it's got like the tank controls and as i say the fixed camera angles and the terrible combat and that sort of thing um but it was kind. Of, it was kind of interesting because um, it was scary in some ways, but in other ways it isn't. I mean, it looks quite laughable now. I watched a playthrough of it recently from I think it was it was someone like Pro Jared or someone like that did it did a, a let's play of it, and it looks pretty silly now. But I recall it being very scary when I originally played it, and it's mm-hmm, not it is through. Scary. Yeah, and it's not through a lot of the things we tend to associate with horror games today. Like, it, despite being called Alone in the Dark, it's actually quite brightly coloured throughout. There's not a lot of dark. <laughs> there's not a lot of darkness in it. Yeah, it's like alone in in a chartreuse and and turquoise coloured. Yeah. House. Um, but it, it 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 did do some things that we we still associate with a lot of horror games today. So it, it was an early one to use camera angles quite effectively so a lot of people who played it they have fond memories of like the um the monster bursting through the window in the first room if you don't put the the cabinet in front of the window and that sort of thing um but it was also use of sound 
so Alone in the Dark had very, very good use of sound. Although it was quite low quality sound, it was like an early 8-bit sound blaster game, so it was quite low quality digitized sound. Um, it also had good music, um, MIDI music again, so again, not hugely high quality, but it made use of the sound cues to set you on edge. So there were things like you'd be walking around uh, and you'd, you'd, you'd had footstep sounds as you walked around. And like sometimes you'd walk around and the footstep sound would be slightly different. And so that, that would tip you off that there was maybe something something there. Uh, but because it wasn't clear what was there, that was designed to set you on edge. And then it would do things like it, you would hear the combat music start, but you wouldn't hear, you wouldn't be able to see what was attacking you and that sort of thing. And so it, it would use little tricks like that to, to set you on edge. And so that was that, that was an early experience with horror gaming for me. I, I don't recall Alone in the Dark sort of really freaking me out as such, uh, with a couple of exceptions. Um, I don't know if you remember the ghosts in Alone in the Dark. Do you remember? I that? don't think I don't think I ever survived far enough to encounter the ghosts in Alone in right. the Dark because the combat was so atrocious. <laughs> I pretty <laughs> much just died the first enemy I encountered every time. Yeah. So um, I mean, a lot of the enemies in Alone in the Dark are zombies and these sort of weird sort of dog bird type monster things that you, <laughs> you have to fight. Um, there aren't that many of them throughout the game, uh, but. But yeah, you do have to deal with them when they come along. The ghosts are a little bit different in that they are not enemies that you have to fight. Uh, every time you encounter a ghost in Alone in the Dark, there is some sort of uh, puzzle involving getting around them in some way. Uh, and it usually involves making sure you don't get near that ghost, but you can still manipulate an object that they may be standing in front of or something like that. So there's, there's one room you go into... And uh, there's something on top of a fireplace. And you can see there's a chair in front of the fireplace. But there's this sort of ill-defined transparent pink shape sitting in the chair. And you don't know what that is to begin with. Uh, until the first time you go and try and pick the thing up off the thing. And this pink shape stands up. The screen starts shaking. This horrible noise going... Starts and... Yeah, it's just terrifying. Just because as soon as a ghost touches you in Alone in the Dark, it will kill you. That sounds awesome. It is awesome. Just like to experience um, it the first time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I was I was playing it with a friend at the time, and we were both completely shut up by that moment. Like the rest of the game had been absolutely fine. It was like zombies, like weird pointy teeth dog monsters. Yeah, absolutely fine. But as soon as that ghost killed us, we were like, uh, okay, <laughs> I don't uh, ghosts, really want to go. Yeah, I, mean, I don't want to go back in that room. Just horror in general. Like ghosts are scary. Like, I'm not afraid of zombies. I'm not afraid of monsters. I'm afraid of ghosts. Yeah. Like, the intangible that you cannot understand, that you cannot physically defend yourself from. Like, ghosts are, like, the most primally scary thing. Mm. And I think that that's part of sort of the... Um, what, what we talked about with regards to psychological horror and sort of gory horror, isn't there? So that's, that's like a big distinction. So, like... Sure. Zombies and monsters are very much on the gory side of things, whereas ghosts are very much a psychological um, mm -hmm. sort of thing because uh, most of the fear of ghosts is not really understanding them, what they are, why they're there, and what they're capable of doing to you. Yeah, that's, a, that's why I like good ghost stories because to defeat a ghost, you don't have to have the biggest shotgun. You have to, you have to figure out why it's a ghost. 
Yeah. And you have to figure out how to satisfy its restless spirit or, or, or what have you. Like yeah. that's, that's, it's good storytelling. It's a vehicle for good storytelling. Hmm. And, um, so if we jump forward to Resident Evil, the most effective parts of Resident Evil for me were the parts where it was playing with that psychological side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so Resident Evil doesn't have any ghosts in it or anything. It's mostly monsters and zombies. Um, but the scary parts of Resident Evil for me were the parts where you walked into a room and you knew something was going to happen, but you didn't know what or when. Yes. So, like, you went into that corridor that the dogs jumped through the windows. You knew something was going to come through those windows, but you didn't know when it was going to happen, what it was going to be, or what you would have to do about it. That was what was scary. It wasn't the fact that dogs were trying to bite your testicles off afterwards. It was it was the fact that something was going to jump through that window and make a loud noise at some point that you inevitably weren't ready for. Yeah. Um, so I mean that that was that was how I felt about Resident Evil. Anyway, I, I know some people sort of specifically find the monsters scary, and you mentioned like the first cutscene freaked you out and so on. Oh yeah. The first, the first cutscene in Resident Evil didn't really bother me too much um, because I, I I sort of played violent games before i I'd, I'd seen sort of gory things like that in games before but at the time i played resident evil i'd never really had a proper full-on jump scare from a game mm. i don't um, think many I, people had no no and i think that's one of the reasons why the early resident evil games were so effective i know jump scares are a bit of a cliche now but that was one of the reasons that those early resident evil games were so effective is because people hadn't experienced that before and once you'd experienced it once you then started to wonder when it was going to happen next or if it was going to happen next. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that would really set you on edge. I, I had written down too, like a game I really respect in terms of horror and design uh, was the original Dead Space. Did you ever play the original Dead Space? No, that's one series I've never actually played at all. So uh, Dead Space 2 and 3 less so because they tended to focus a bit more on the gory action elements they're they're fine games in their own right but like dead space one very specifically um incorporates a lot of these design philosophies we're talking about so like good use of sound uh, environmental design that's conducive to jump scares you know uh camera angles and object placement that you're you're afraid to walk by that computer because Mm -hmm. you know that a tentacle could shoot out of the air grate next to that computer and grab your, an- <laughs> you know, grab your ankle. Um, it just really, th- the game, the whole game is really thoughtfully built around the the fear and isolation of being trapped in this derelict space station and the horrors that can just bust through at any time. It, it's not the monsters themselves that are scary and the encounters that are scary. It's the moment to moment navigation around this place knowing and try anticipating when the monsters could happen again yeah and say so once they happen it's like you have your action shooty sequence and it's fun but it's done but it's it's the moment to moment life between those sequences that really defines that game and you can when it's quiet and you can hear the breathing in your space helmet and oh it's it's wonderfully designed yeah i think this sort of thing is why um a lot of the Silent Hill games are so successful as well. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. They do um, this very well. Yeah. So, I, I, I mean, the, the exact effectiveness of it varies depending on which installment you're talking about. And most people commonly regard 2 to be sort of the, the real high point of the series. And I'd probably agree with that. Um, 
but again, in in Silent Hill, the the scariness is, is again not to do with the monsters. And in fact, thinking about it, I, I I don't believe there are really any jump scares in Silent Hill games. No, the monsters are all just like plodding. They're just kind of there. You turn around yeah. the corner, and they're kind of like living their monster lives. Yeah, and and like the scary thing is sort of maybe catching a glimpse of something and not really understanding what's going on. Like the first time you see Pyramid Head in Silent Hill Two, you think, "Is is he really doing what I think he's doing?" And then he sees you, and yeah, it's it's freaky because you don't know what the hell this thing is, but he's obviously taking an interest in you. Mm-hmm. And and the scary parts of that are not like where he's bursting through a wall or anything like that. It's where he's sort of walking slowly towards you, and you you sort of have to figure out, "Am I supposed to fight him? Am I supposed to run away?" It's that sort of tapping into those sort of primal instincts i guess have you ever played uh, the room silent hill 4 yes yes i think what's interesting about the room that a lot of and a lot of people don't like that one um but it kind of ties into what we're talking about here specifically is uh there are ghosts are very prevalent in the room yes which is which are ghosts are not really a thing in the other silent hill games it's more just that those the weird faceless monsters that are with the weird bodies and stuff but yeah um the the room is very interesting because some of the enemies are ghosts and you can't fight them yeah like as soon as they are close to you your stamina simply starts draining and you will just die you just die and i remember playing that game for the first time and just dying repeatedly in just the first area trying to fight like trying to like punch the ghosts yeah I remember joking that like, the first ghost that we used to call the first ghost Bill Cosby because he had like an ugly sweater on, and we would just we, we would just we would just scream like I've goddamn Bill Cosby keeps killing me, and like I had to keep, I had to keep restarting the game, uh, and then like five years later I'm like reading about it and it's like oh you're not supposed to try to punch the ghosts to death, you're supposed to run away from them and like okay. seek and like seek shelter because you can't defeat ghosts. Yeah, by conventional means. Silent Hill Four was also kind of interesting because it had that delineation between the first person and the third person segments as well, yes. didn't it? Yes, yes. So it did. you had um, it, it kind of set you up initially to kind of believe that um, the first person segments where you were in your flat, you were sort of supposed to be safe in there. So sort of you weren't outside, you weren't sort of going through areas trying to find monsters and things. But as you progress through the game, your room gets more and more fucked up. Yeah, um, but but not in really obvious ways. Like a lot of the time, you will sort of see something that looks a bit weird, and you'll go over and look at it, and then it's something horrendous happening. But it won't be immediately apparent, and that it, it's really effective for that. It's just because it or starts. Or just doing... be like a hole made of meat in the wall yeah. of your living room that wasn't there before. That's a great horror game, and nobody likes it. Nobody ever talks about the room when people talk about Silent Hill. It's a freaking cool game. Yeah, I I really enjoyed it. I have actually only played it once, and it was probably about ten years ago now. So I need to revisit that at some point. But uh, yeah, I, I, everyone does talk about Silent Hill too. But the other Silent Hills have got a lot of interesting things going on as well. Um, I, I think three is the best one, but I'm super in the minority on that one. I I like three as well. Actually, again, it's not one I've played for a while, but it is one that I played a lot when I had it. Uh, three is actually um an interesting example of something i want to bring up a little bit later which is sort of the the japanese approach to game design when it comes to horror games but i'll 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 save that for a minute and we'll come back to that one sure um with what we're talking about with silent hill for the room here as well this is also worth bringing up one of the project zero games i think here i'm currently playing through project zero three at the moment 
and so the the spooky stuff in project zero three um it, again it's got this sort of same sort of delineation that uh silent hill 4's got so you have these sequences where the main character is at home and you can walk around you can talk to her assistant and you can research stuff and you can develop photographs and stuff like that and then when she goes to sleep she has these dreams about this spooky old mansion uh that all sorts of bad shit is obviously going on with and her dreams are obviously related to the central curse of the story um <clears throat> And again, it, it does the same kind of thing that Silent Hill 4 does, in that as you progress through the game, um, it starts to give you just these odd little glimpses of strange things that are happening in her house, in the real world. So things that are sort of leaking out of this dream into the real world. But they're very subtle to begin with. So it's sort of like one of the first things that happens is just uh, she'll walk out of her room and there'll just be a very brief moment of the screen getting a bit of film noise on it. And, and and nothing happens but it just happens every time she walks out of her room in this one particular sequence and you don't know why it's happening but it, it makes you panic it makes you look around because in the the dream sequences in that game a bit of film noise on the screen is usually a signal that there is a ghost nearby and you're probably going to need to fight it um but obviously when you're in the real world you don't have access to all the abilities you have in this dream world you don't have the capability of actually fighting off ghosts so you're left wondering exactly what you're supposed to do if something does jump out and try and kill you. Um, but nothing happens in in that first moment. I haven't finished the game yet, so I don't know if something nasty does happen in the house by the end of it. But yeah, it is it is there to sort of set you on edge and give you that, that, that real feeling there. Yeah, my experience with Fatal Frame slash Project Zero doesn't extend past the second game. Mm. So it's virgin territory for me. So I'm interested to learn more about the later entries. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I think now is probably as good a time as any. So um, last week, uh, sorry, last episode when we talked a bit about this, you mentioned that you, you're not a particular fan of survival horror as a genre. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of the thing that a lot of people most readily associate with it, with with horror games. When you say horror games, a lot of people associate it with survival horror. So um, t- t- tell, me, tell me a bit about what's what kind of brought you to that feeling what what is it that you're not a particular fan of with with survival horror games and what what does horror game mean to you what would be a good horror game for you then uh well it all kind of ties back into kind of something we were talking about in our earlier segment is just um i need like the movement and action in games to feel really good for me to engage with them right i've just you know survival horror games are of course much more of a thoughtful narrative focused experience mm-hmm. um and that's often at the sacrifice of more kinetic or satisfying actually mechanical gameplay yeah um well I'm, i mean sort of a, a key aspect of the definition of survival horror for a lot of people is the fact that the controls are deliberately stiff and awkward aren't they yes so sort of because that that's sort of the part of the idea of setting the player on edge is is making them feel like it's difficult to respond to things it's kind of supposed to be a simulation of being in a panic and not knowing what to do i guess but yeah. i've always thought that was a doofy excuse for just designing <laughs> shitty games <laughs> but but i get it i get it i i understand um and i understand some of that stuff like you know i specifically understand in survival horror games the focus on um tightly managed resources and stuff like that but it's just like i can't abide the tank controls i simply can't like i will not play a game with tank control Uh 
you know, like left and right rotates back and yeah, forward. Yeah. Like the list of games with tank controls I'm willing to abide are very small and don't extend much past Onimusha. Uh-huh. Um, it's, I, I will say it's actually quite rare to find a slightly more recent survival horror game that still uses tank controls. Yeah, so they don't for, do it for, anymore. Yeah, so but I mean, I mean, even even all the Project Zero Fatal Frame games, they all use um, these. I think uh, what Silent Hill referred to as 3D movement. So you just push the stick in a direction and you sure. go that way. Yeah, and, and um, that's that in that era. That's when I started opening up more to survival horror games because as soon yeah. as the tank controls became passe, yeah. I, I was a bit more able to engage with them. Yeah. Um, so like Silent Hill 3, right? I really love Silent Hill 3 because it just uh-huh. has regular analog control. And so I, I can play it more comfortably. But when I really opened up to survival horror is kind of the post Resident Evil 4 era. When they started right. introducing a bit more action-y bits. Okay, um, yeah. To, to that. So like still, still a pretty typical survival horror experience, but a more conducive camera angle, more satisfying action gameplay during those combat segments. You know, I had just mentioned Dead Space. What I love about Dead Space is the horror and design, the feelings of isolation and fear are so strong, and the combat is designed to be mechanically interesting. The weapons right. are cool. So when a survival horror game has both, then I can really get on board with it. Yeah. But it just, his, historically, it's a genre that's never really bit in for me okay. because of the, the plottingness of it has been a turn off. Yeah. So, so would you say that sort of shift to more action is thinking specifically about Resident Evil Four because this is this is often held up as the the sort of first example of of what we might think of as modern survival horror or modern horror games. Is is it that yeah. that sort of slightly greater emphasis on action that that that, that makes that so good? Then do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's emphasis on action, but uh, but I mean, I mean, such. sort of combining that with the with the sort of atmospheric and narrative elements as well. So sort of making a more yeah making a more satisfying game with similar elements, yes. but making the actual game side of things a bit more satisfying. Yes, to me, to me, that's the tipping point. Like, I, I still, I still need my survival hard games to be mechanically interesting games. Okay, not not just like sluggish, walk from room to room, find a hair fiber in a dryer and then yeah. learn figure out where to put those hair fibers to summon a ghost yeah. like that's just, just to me i'd rather just watch a ghost movie okay fair enough right see see i like that side of things because um and this is to do with uh how how i grew up gaming basically um and so a big part of me growing up gaming uh was adventure games so sort of tradi- traditional sure. adventure games beginning with text-based adventure games on the old atari systems and then in sort of uh once once pc sort of hit the vga age uh moving on to point and click adventures from companies like sierra and LucasArts. and so your typical graphic adventure game is very deliberately paced uh very strong focus on the narrative gameplay is little more than searching for the right thing to click on clicking on it and occasionally picking an inventory item to do that um that that is something that i've enjoyed for several reasons firstly because it was one of my earliest examples of uh games telling a story which mm-hmm. uh most people will probably know by now is is one of my favorite things to engage with in games is games games with a strong story and adventure games are one of the earliest genres to be able to do that uh and also it it just a sort of personal experience side of things um adventure games were one of the first kinds of games that i could actually really share with other people 
Um, okay. and so obviously, I, I played sort of multiplayer games and two-player games and so on. But um, by the time I was getting seriously into games, my brother, my brother was a bit older, and so he was out doing teenage things, and then eventually moving, leaving home, and so on. Uh, and I lived seven miles away from my friends, and so on. So. Um, most of the time I was in the house with my family and uh, it turned out that my mum really likes adventure games <laughs> mine too yeah. my mom and I used to play uh, the Karandia games yeah. together and, and so it, it became quite a regular thing for, for me and my mum and my brother when he was around To we would sit down and we would play some adventure games so we would play stuff like uh, like the Sierra games, the King's Quest games uh, Gabriel Knight is probably one of the favourite ones that we played. That actually, that oh, actually yeah. ties in quite nicely with the the horror theme, actually. Um, and so that's that's just something I have very positive associations with. And when I played things like Resident Evil and stuff for the first time, I I was getting a similar vibe to those adventure games and all these positive associations I have with them, uh, but sure. but doing something a little bit different with them. Um, and I'm getting a similar vibe from things like Project Zero and stuff that I'm playing now. So you've got that deliberate pacing, you've got that sense of exploring the unknown, of finding things and that sort of thing. So so the survival horror thing for me is is not so much about the the actual horror side of things. It, it, it's, it's, it's the fact that it's sort of an evolution of the adventure game genre almost. Yeah, that's a very logical step to yeah. make. Um, I, don't, I don't dislike yeah. them. It's just, it's just not my go-to genre. You know, it's not my favorite. But like sometimes I, I'm, in, I'm in the mood for yeah. it. I just have to, I have to very specifically be in a mood. Yeah. For it. Now, um, I mentioned before uh, with Silent Hill Three, one of, one of the things I, f- I find interesting about Japanese horror games in particular, uh, especially sort of this, this era we're talking about, so sort of pre-Resident Evil Four, is that. Um, you, this this kind of this dis- distinction in different ways of playing them. So sort of the first time through a Resident Evil game or Project Zero or Fatal Frame or whatever, you play it through and you you are experiencing the narrative. You are there in the role of the main character. You are feeling the things that they're feeling. You're f- feeling this this sort of sense of fear and atmosphere. But but one of the most interesting things to me is the fact that a lot of these horror games they then have this sort of post game content, which kind mm-hmm. of play, yeah. plays down the atmospheric and narrative side of things and plays up the mechanical side of things. So, for example, in the first Project Zero, you have this battle mode which focuses exclusively on the combat sequences and sort of trying to get the best photos and so on. Silent Hill 3 had all the different unlockable weapons and costumes. There was even a mode where you could sort of have a visible health bar and stamina bar on screen. And uh, there was the, the Heather Beam costume. I don't know if you ever had that at all. Where I've seen footage was, of it, but I've never been able to get it myself. It is hilarious. Because it, it, it's, it's just Heather dresses up as sort of like this sort of like super Japanese superhero thing that looks like something out of Space Channel 5. And like she doesn't have any other weapons, but she can just like fire magical psychic beams from her hands and just everything just goes down in one hit. So when you're playing in that mode, it, it's it's like designed for you to have fun with the game and speed run your way through it. And like you talk, you yeah. talk about Silent Hill 3, it's a game about sort of like tragedy and loss and all sorts of horrible things happening and dealing with grief. And then you have this mode that just complete it sounds like it should completely undermine everything the game is trying to do but by the point you have unlocked yeah. that you've experienced all that side of things and so it's encouraging you to kind of have a bit of fun with it as well and that's something i find really interesting and it's it's not something that 
uh, a lot of Western developers seem particularly interested in doing. So if we take a couple of uh, sort of high-profile, well-known examples of Western horror games that have done quite well. So I'm thinking specifically here of uh, Amnesia The Dark Descent is one. Oh, uh, yes. And Outlast is another. So both of those games are designed to be very immersive first-person experiences in which you inhabit the role of the main character, but you get to the end and that's it. You, you, you've done it. And if you play it again, it'll be the same. That's it. There's nothing le nothing left to do in that. Um, and I, I, I found Outlast in particular to be... I don't know. I, I didn't find Outlast very satisfying. I don't know if you've played it at all. No, I'm not, I'm not even really familiar with it. All these games really bleed together for me. Yeah. These like indie, these indie western first person horror yeah. games. Like, uh, like which is the one where you're like trapped in the insane asylum and you're being like chased? That's, that's by... Outlast. Is that yeah. Outlast? Okay. So, so I'm familiar with it by reputation, I guess. But the fact that nothing about it appeals to the me. fact that they're all blurring together is is sort of part of the problem, really. In that many of them they have a narrative component, but the developers don't seem to really know how to integrate that into the experience as a whole. So there is this sort of sense that they've built a world and they've built a reason for all this stuff to exist. But I know when I was playing Outlast, I just felt like I was going through a haunted house with sort of various different horror episodes going on with each new area that I reached. And it didn't really, mm -hmm. it didn't really feel very coherent. It just felt like, Oh, in this sequence, okay, you're obviously being chased by this guy. In this sequence, this is the one where you get tied down and they try and castrate you. And it's like, yeah, it's it it just stopped being scary after a while because it just became a bit predictable. You knew that when you were coming into a new area, you were going to have something new that would be chasing you or whatever. And I don't know, it it just didn't feel like it, it integrated the the sort of core things of of what what appeals to me about horror games. Yeah, yeah, like nothing about those games really is interesting to me in like any way. <laughs> like yeah. I guess I guess Amnesia has some interesting design ideas behind it. Am but Amnesia is kind of cool because it it um it kind of plays on the the Lovecraftian ideal of uh sort of that which must not be spoken of. And so and, yeah, and like, ma like progressive madness. Yeah, and, and, and so the whole thing in in amnesia is like you can't fight, and you, but you can't even look at the monsters, otherwise you'll go mad. And that that's that's a very Lovecraftian concept, but it's a very difficult thing to do in gaming. Yeah, um, yeah, because I want to see the monsters. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and, and so, so so sort of sanity is obviously a, a big thing that's used a lot in horror games as well, and that's that's been done in in various different ways over the years. So. Eternal Darkness is one of my favorite horror games. Eternal Darkness is, is an interesting example because I almost don't regard that as a horror game in some ways. Um, yeah. Just just because of the way it plays more than anything. Um, so, I, I mean, it, it has sort of like the creepy old house and the kind of Lovecraftian story and so on. But when I when I play Eternal Darkness, it, I, I don't find it especially scary. And like no, me yeah, either. and like even even the sanity effects and so on. The, the sanity effects are more sort of amusing than anything, because because yeah. they're all very meta. They're all very, um, they're all very. Oh, this this is the video game is doing a strange thing. The video game is deleting my save files. The video game has reversed this room and that kind of thing. Um, and so I'm not saying that's not effective because it was very surprising the first time it did those things. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but it. 
that kind of sort of taps into a different part of my brain that sort of a, a horror game did, if yeah. you like. Yeah, well, like, that's kind of what I talked about earlier, is, like, there's a clear distinction in your mind and my mind, it sounds like, between what is horror and what is simply a spooky or macabre yeah. setting in a game. And, like, to me, I'm more of a fan of the latter. Right. I'm more of a fan of games with a spooky, macabre, gothic setting or story than necessarily games that are horror games, mm-hmm. wherein the, the horror is integral to the design. Yeah. So, like, you know, like, you came here ready to talk about, like, Silent Hill and, like, Fatal Frame and, and all that. But, like, my list of games I wanted to talk about in a Halloween episode is Ghosts and Goblins, <laughs> Demon, Demon's Crest, Splatterhouse, mm. House, of the, House of the Dead. Like, arcade stuff that just happens to have a Halloween-appropriate setting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, and I definitely consider Eternal Darkness more on that side of things. Yeah, yeah, same. Um, I th- I, th- I think for me, there's actually quite a simple way you can distinguish with them, and that is, it does this game have music? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's true. It's like it's true. So like, you play something like Silent Hill or um, Project Zero: Fatal Frame, and like the background sound is all all the way through. Um, and like and like machines. Yeah. And like you see, you see that there's like an official soundtrack album of it. It's like who would ever want to listen to that? I have all the Silent Hill soundtracks. <laughs> Akira Yamaoka is a genius. Yeah. And do you know what I do with them? When I set my house up for trick or treat on Halloween, I play the Silent Hill soundtracks. <laughs> and, Amazing. And, and there's like a 200 foot radius of children not willing to come anywhere near the house. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, like look back at Eternal Darkness and stuff. That has great music. <laughs> it does it has a really good soundtrack um yeah yeah so so that that is an interesting distinction i i i do kind of like both like i say i i, I enjoy the survival horror side of things i enjoy the scary noises and and the not knowing what's behind the next door and that sort of thing but i i also appreciate uh the stuff with like gothic elements and stuff like um I, i'm sure you would as well but i'd also count things like castlevania in there as well obviously yeah, I made a, I made a promise that I wouldn't talk about Castlevania today because it's all I will talk about. Like there should be a Castlevania episode. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, well we'll set that aside then. But but yeah. But yeah, but that's what I'm talking about. Like stuff like Castlevania. That's what I like. Yeah. Like st- stuff with a spooky setting that is just a regular arcade game. Yeah. <laughs> but like, or action game. Yeah. Or like Devil May Cry. Yeah. Like I love like I love Devil May Cry. For it's like you're in a haunted house. Like the first Devil May Cry was a haunted house game. Like you're in a giant haunted castle, yeah. and it was contained to that setting. Like that's cool. Like I love, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to make a. I'd love to make a game with both. That would be like a dream. Like, like a game. Like you are like a cool action guy, like Dante and Devil May Cry. But, you know, kind of like I was describing with Dead Space, like there's the puzzle solving and the scary parts, and then we're in the action, then it's like the shooty sequences. Yeah. That, would be a, that would be a cool yeah. game. Like, like you're a ninja exploring a, a haunted mansion in old Tokyo, and like there's spooky elements and puzzle solving, but then when the action sequences happen, it's like Undead Samurai, and then it's like a proper third-person action game. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah. It kind of surprises me that it doesn't exist, to be honest. Um... Interestingly, I, I remember when the original Devil May Cry came out, and it it was almost marketed as that. 
before it was released. Because because yeah, they they were was. playing very heavily on the this is developed by the guy who made Resident Evil. It's the new game from the guy yeah. who made Resident Evil. And so when I picked that up for the first time, I was expecting basically a new Resident Evil game with a different character. Well, didn't they include the demo of it with one of the Resident Evil? I think Evils? they did. It, yeah. Um, but yeah, and I remember one. I think one of the reasons I bounced off Devil May Cry when I first played it was because it wasn't quite what I was expecting. Um, and I ended up getting my ass kicked by action game mechanics that I wasn't quite ready for. And, um, yeah. So, and I was the other way yeah. around. I was like, I'm just going to play this demo 30 times. Like, you guys can have my copy of the Resident Evil it came with. Like, I'm done. I was like, peace out. Like, this is my new jam. I was like, done. Yeah. Because yeah. I can uppercut a dude i can uppercut a zombie into the air and then shotgun him while he's in the air and then like chunks <laughs> rain down and then like the word sweet appears on screen and like neon orange i was like this is this is more my speed yeah but there are those moments in the original devil may cry where it's like you're in the library there's cobwebs everywhere spooky music's playing you find like the red orb that opens the next door and it's hidden behind a statue of an angel that's crying like there are those like gothic horror elements but then as soon as you pick up that red orb like electric guitars start blasting and the glass <laughs> shatters and like like 30 grim reapers fly in the window and then it's like 20 minutes of combos <laughs> like oh love that yeah. game yeah and then you curse at a giant tarantula who spits lava. The, the giant tarantula is the reason I stopped playing that game in the first place, just because I could not beat him. When I first played, that's the first. Yeah, boss. when I first played Devil May Cry, I just could not get past that, and I just got so irritated with it. I was just like, no, fuck this. <laughs> like I say, I, I I am keen to return to it with uh, with a slightly more mature perspective, but uh, we should we shall see how I get on. Yeah. You can get that collection. I, right? I, I've actually just just picked affordable. up the, the PS2 versions recently because they're all super cheap oh, now. Oh, that's so, fair enough. You know, authentic and all that. So yeah, good times. They're great games. Yeah. So I I think buck up for five. Yeah, right? definitely. So I think one of the one of the interesting things we've highlighted here is that horror is a really really broad thing that you can do in gaming. So there's there's it doesn't have to be limited to poking around in the dark and. Finding, like you say, finding strands of hair in plug holes and tying them onto things and that sort of thing. There's, there's so much you can do with the idea of horror. I think it's, it's really interesting, just quite how much, how many different approaches we've seen over the years, uh, from, from both eastern and western developers. When you think about it, so like mm -hmm. you can think about things like Doom and stuff as well. That would sort of fall under the, the, the horror banner as well. It's just like literally. I was terrified of Doom. Yeah, as a kid. I was as well. I mean, I was, I was terrified of Wolfenstein 3D. I, 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 yeah, again, because yeah. of its good use of sound and music and so on. Like I, I remember again, I was playing playing the game with with the same person that I often played um, things like Resident Evil and stuff with, and we got to the first boss level, and the the music on that level was absolutely terrifying. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it, and and just first person was a revelation too at yeah. the time to to be immersed in that like. It wasn't just, here's an enemy I'm seeing. It was, here's an enemy I'm seeing, yeah. right? This enemy is before me because of this first-person view. Like, that totally changed the way I, I was able to be impacted in a yeah. game. Yeah, definitely. 
Actually, when I think back, like you asked me when one of my earliest horror experiences was, I have like vague recollections of the Uninvited. Oh yes. Did you ever play the Un? Like, so, like the NES version of the Uninvited it used to scare the crap out of me because the graphical portions of that were from a first-person perspective. Yeah. So, like when you encountered a monster, or a zombie, or a ghost, or whatever, it was like I'm I'm here, I'm present, and looking at yeah. this thing. It wasn't just an obscure sprite. Yeah. I remember not being able to play that as a kid. I remember having a friend who was obsessed with it, and I remember just, like, curling up in a corner <laughs> on his couch, like, hiding behind a pillow, like, while he insisted on playing yeah. it. I was a bit like that with the spiders in Resident Evil, to be honest. Oh, yeah. I don't, oh, you're not a, you don't like spiders. I, I, I don't like spiders anyway, but, like, there was... Like, like, my most traumatic memory of Resident Evil is when the camera angle changed, and it was just as a spider was coming towards the screen... And, like, the spider basically then filled the whole screen. I was like, oh, my God, I can't deal with that. And, and like, it, it, was, it wasn't it was a scripted moment or anything like that. It was just like, oh, it's the most horrendous thing I'd ever seen in a game at that point. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let's let's give a let's give a hats off to the silent uh, the silent triumph of the horror game, which was the fixed camera yes. angle. Like, fixed camera angles get a lot of crap these days. But they are such an effective method for telling stories and presenting yeah. Im imagery in a cinematic fashion. Yeah, definitely. Like the horror games almost require a fixed camera angle to accomplish the things they want mm -hmm. to accomplish. When you give that control of the player to what you can see and when, you completely rob all fear. Mm. Like you take all the fear away. If I can see everything, what is there to be yeah. afraid of? Yeah. That's that's actually another interesting thing I spotted in um, Project Zero Three last night specifically. Um, those huh. are fixed camera angle games, with a couple of exceptions. So, like the the later ones and the remake of Project Zero Two on the Wii, they use a, an over the shoulder perspective instead. Um, but Pro Project Zero Three um, is is fixed camera angles, and like part of the idea of it is is like I've said before, it's got this this dreamlike aspect to it. Um, part of what it does with that is it kind of highlights the this sort of confusion of dreams and nightmares and so there's a sequence in project zero three where you go through part of the mansion in project zero one um okay but all the rooms are in the wrong place <laughs> so like you go through a door and if if you've played project zero one you know that this door leads to a certain place but you, you yeah, and you and you do because you've just played yeah, them all back exactly. to back. So it's and I opened this door in Project Zero Three, and it led to somewhere completely different. I was like, "No, this is all wrong. This is really wrong." And so there was that side of things, and then there was also something really subtle that it did that I I only sort of noticed by chance, which was, um, on on one particular sequence of the game, it just reversed the the default camera angles for a particular room. And so, 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 for example, when when you first come into this corridor, like when you're when you're walking into the house to sort of go, go the way the game wants you to go, and so on, it's sort of it's sort of showing you uh, from from one particular camera angle. It's sort of behind the character as you go up the corridor. But when I played it uh, in this particular chapter last night, it was showing the room from the complete opposite angle, and it wasn't just because that was where I'd came from. It was like every other time I'd been in that room, it it, it shown it from this first camera angle that I was familiar with so and that was just a really effective way of just making me sort of pause for a minute and thinking well what's what's going on right isn't that yeah. amazing how like it, it isn't even a conscious reaction yeah. 
your your brain has just stored what it expects to see when you walk through that doorway and it is an instinctual moment of fear like what what are they going to show me here or do to me here that's different why is this different and like you can only accomplish that with fixed camera angle yeah for sure all right any other specific points you'd like to bring up about horror I don't. I don't think so. Like I said, it's not a genre I have a lot of experience with. It. Most of my engagement with survival horror games as a genre has been as a spectator, uh-huh. like ha- having friends who are really into them and just being in the room and being present and almost experiencing them like a movie as they play them. Yeah. Because to me, to me, I could never handle the movement or the combat. Yeah. So it was always more of a spectator sport for me. It's it's, it's kind of a funny one for me because it, it's one of those genres that. I, I don't think about it for a very long time, a, a long period. But then when I start engaging with them, I think, yeah, this is actually one of my favorite things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I, guess, I guess you just have to be in the right mood for them, I guess. And obviously with it being spooky October, it's the, it's the right time of year. We've sort of developed that association with that now. And it's, all like, it's, the, it's the right time of year yeah. to play Project Zero. But uh, yeah, it's... In, Honestly, as an adult, uh, I feel like I, if I, I could revisit a lot of these games and probably get a lot more out yeah, of them. Yeah. Uh, now that I'm not like a twitchy teenager anymore, but like when the PS2 was in its heyday, I was like 16. Yeah. Like all I wanted was like tits and guns. <laughs> now I also I, now I want so much yeah. more. <laughs> right. So like I think I could probably engage in these games in a much more meaningful mm. way now that now that I'm older and have patience. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. All right, let's wrap that up there then for now, um, because that's been a very good discussion. So thank you for that. Would you like to tell people mm, where they can find you on the internet? Sure, MrGilderPixels dot com. M R G I L D E R P I X E L S. That is my primary website where I share finished pieces. I also um, share kind of work in progress shots and stuff uh, on all my social networking sites. Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, uh, as Mr. Gilder Pixels, and there's links to those on my website as well. So uh, please give me a follow and like and comment. I really appreciate hearing from people. Excellent. And you can find my articles on MurrayGamer.net every weekday and a bit of the weekends now as well. I've got some video stuff going up as well. Uh, on the YouTube channel, you can find uh, some Let's Play series, some video readings of articles, and also my Atari A to Z series, which covers the Atari 8-bit and Atari ST games. Um, also, check out videopackgames.wordpress.com for my coverage of some of the Philips G7000 video pack computer or Odyssey 2 um, uh, games from over the years. And I'm sure there was something else I meant to mention, but I've completely forgotten it now. I need to go and have a lie down, I think. (laughs) All right. As always, thank you very much for watching and or listening, and we shall see you again next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can watch a video version of it over on YouTube. Be sure to check out moegamer.net for new articles on Japanese and Japanese-inspired video games, new and old, every weekday. 
Every month, Moe Gamer features an in-depth exploration of an individual game or series as its cover game, so be sure to check the archives to see if your favourite has had a deep dive yet. If you'd like to support the site directly, please consider becoming a patron or buying me a coffee. You can find links to do both over on moegamer.net. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.